reading news headlines, it's so clear that there's no lack of urgent need to create social change across the world. However, so many people feel stuck, lost, or unsure of how to make a difference on the issues they care about. Regardless of where you work, there's a certain set of skills and mindsets that are absolutely crucial to becoming a changemaker. Our incredible guest today has studied exactly how to become a changemaker throughout his career, has authored a book on the topic, as well as teaches a course on it at UC Berkeley. He offers inspiring examples and valuable insights to both people currently working in the social impact sector, as well as anyone else who just wants to change the status quo. Welcome to the Be Social Change podcast, your go-to resource for weekly personal professional development to help you build a successful social impact career. I'm Marco Salazar. And I'm Jen Lashansky, and we're the team behind Be Social Change. Over the past decade, we've helped tens of thousands of professionals and entrepreneurs grow their social impact careers, and we're excited to help you do the same. In the podcast, you'll learn new skills and strategies from inspiring social impact leaders who have built careers at socially conscious companies, innovative nonprofits, and within government. We're so happy you found this podcast and look forward to helping you build a meaningful, fulfilling, and successful social impact career. Let's get into it. I met Alex many years ago when we were both starting out as social entrepreneurs, figuring out how we can make and scale an impact. He's done a remarkable job of translating so many social impact lessons into resources that are accessible to all. And we're so lucky that he's sharing his insights and wisdom with us today. Alex started StartSomeGood.com many years ago to help fund local change projects. He's run a social innovation startup incubator internationally, and he is now a professor at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business. The approach and process that Alex has studied in becoming a changemaker is meaningful to anyone who is looking to overcome the barriers that prevent people from taking action to be social change in the world. Let's jump in, Marcos. Welcome to the podcast, Alex. Uh, Jen, Marcos, delighted to be with you. Thanks. I'm super excited to talk with you because we've known each other probably for close to a decade, and you were one of the really early movers in the social impact space with one of your organizations, Start Some Good, that we're going to talk about. And it's going to be interesting to see from your perspective how the social impact space has evolved over the past decade and what are opportunities for people to make an impact through their careers. So we'd love to kick it off and just hear a little bit about the social impact work you're doing. Well, right now, I find myself at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, where I created and teach a class, which is honestly, it's a dream come true. It's the class I wish I could have taken when I was 22. It's called Becoming a Changemaker. And it's all about how you can learn to lead change at any level and across sectors and roles. It's the most fun that I've had, honestly, in my whole career is teaching. And so in addition to that, I also recently wrote a book, No Surprise, also called Becoming a Changemaker, which takes some of the lessons from the class and makes them accessible to more folks around the world. Amazing. And I think we're very much aligned of why we even created this podcast. And it's really about wanting to share the knowledge and career advice that we wish we had when we were growing our own careers. So we'd love to just dive deep into the class as well as the book and how is it structured and what can people expect as they end up reading the book? The book is subtitled An Actionable Inclusive Guide for Leading Positive Change at Any Level. And I think those are the two really important themes to me, that it's actionable and it's also inclusive. So the way I'd structure the class and also the book is in three parts. The first part is a change maker mindset. So that's the way that you see the world around you and your role in shaping it. I've done some original research. I'm not a researcher, I'm a teacher, but I've done some original research. It's called the Changemaker Index. By the way, if any of your listeners want to take it for yourselves, it's changemakerbook.com slash index. 
And there you can see what your greatest strength as a change maker is. So in my research, I found that irrespective of roles or sectors, there's some traits that all change makers have. For instance, an ability, a willingness to question the status quo, an ability to influence without formal authority. So we explore those together. The second part is change maker leadership. Um, I think a lot of the leadership we teach, especially in business schools, is really outdated and broken. And so we look at what does it actually take to lead change today? How do you come up with a vision for change and inspire others to come along with you on that journey? How do you lead inclusively? And then the third part is change maker action, because it doesn't matter if you have a great mindset and great leadership skills. If you don't do anything with it, you'll never have that impact that you want to have. And so action is all about how do you take those really challenging, but absolutely crucial first steps of action? How can you make change feel a little less scary and a little bit more approachable? Whether that change we want to lead is a social justice movement, or maybe just a change within our existing organizations. There's room for all of it, but it all takes getting started. And I love those three kind of key pillars that you're talking about. And I love that you leave with mindset. And we'd love to hear a little bit about why is that so important? And why is that the foundation? Why do you start with that first? In my class, I like to bring in ideas from a lot of different disciplines. And so I'll actually start with poetry here. So I love the poem by Amanda Gorman, The Hill We Climb. It's the poem she delivered at the inauguration of Biden and Harris. I think the final three lines of it are a great summation of what it means to have a change maker mindset. She says, for there is always light if we're brave enough to see it and if we're brave enough to be it. This idea for there's always light. We shouldn't pretend that we aren't facing real systemic, deep challenges right now, but there's always light. I think change makers have an ability to not just pretend that there aren't issues, right? Not that sort of toxic positivity, but also we don't get overwhelmed by the state of things. We say, well, there's a problem here and maybe there's something we can do about it for there's always light. If only we're brave enough to see it. So as a change maker, can you see things that others may not see quite yet? Sometimes we think that vision is something owned only by the executive director, only by the CEO. But I think vision is something that each of us can have. And so it's recognizing maybe a system that's unjust and needs to be challenged or a status quo needs to be disrupted. And then finally, that third part, if only we're brave enough to be it. I see change makers for this, the courage that it takes to stand up and lead change. Now, this doesn't mean that you have all the answers. And oftentimes, I think as the folks that you've interviewed and you yourselves know, we don't have all the answers, but it takes courage to say, hey, I don't know exactly the right answer, but I do know I believe in this. I'm going to stand up. I'm going to do something about this. And that courage unlocks so much of our action. And so that idea of for there's always light, if we're brave enough to see it, we're brave enough to be it. Alex, it makes so much sense. And I think it's going to resonate so deeply with so many people who are seeking their own be social change journey, their own change maker journey, because we often think once I get to a certain level, that's when I can make the impact that I want to. Once I've reached a certain salary level, that's when I can make the impact. Once I've retired, then I can do something good with my time. And what you're saying is really accessible to all. Something that really moves me uh, about what you mentioned as far as the mindset is the idea that it doesn't require formal authority. And I'm wondering if you can share other examples that you've seen in your classroom or through your informal research about leaders who have taken a lack of authority and done something with it, because those are the stories that we really want to highlight as far as growing grassroots movements, growing change and social change movements. Oh, yeah. I love that. So I think influencing is super, super important. And I'll scaffold that with some of my favorite social science research. This is done by Damon Santola, University of Pennsylvania. And he did something called tipping points and social conventions. So looking at what percent of people in a group need to be on board with a new norm, new way of doing things to make it likely the majority will go on board as well. And so if you were to ask me, I would guess it's got to be at least 50%. Maybe it's like two thirds, something like that. But actually, the data show it's only 25%. It's actually far fewer people than you might expect to be on board to make change happen. 
And so this came to light with a change maker I was working with. So he was working at kind of a traditional manufacturing company and he was super passionate about composting. So he wanted his whole company to compost and he had maybe three or four failed attempts at getting the whole company to compost. And the issue was that he tried to take on everyone. He tried to convince an entire 200 person company that every single person had to compost and that was it. He also tried to work through the very formal channels. So he worked really hard to try to get the CEO to send out a message and get the CEO to lead this. But then once we found the social science research, he realized, look, I don't need 200 people on board at first. I only need 50. And so when he thought about how to engage 50 people, it becomes much more accessible. He found his champions. He found the people that would be the early supporters. He delegated to them, let them think about ways they could encourage their own teammates, their colleagues to start composting. And by getting a much smaller group of people on board who are passionate about it as well and working bottom up instead of top down, it got to the point where, again, I'm not saying it's exactly 25%, but right around there, it's reached this magic tipping point where things really took hold and became composting throughout the company. And so I like that example because one, it's grounded in social science research, but also I think it paints a picture of how we often think about change, which is that it's all or nothing, that I've got to get every single person on board, got to get the CEO on board, got to go top down. But actually, it just starts with leading from where you are. He had some good relationships with some folks, encouraged them to be part of it, and then it snowballed from there. I love everything you're saying because I'm reflecting back on those three pillars and how we think about B social change, where when you break it down, the B is that inner aspect, that inner work that you have to do before you can create change. That social is that working with and through others, like that leadership, and then the change is that action component. And I think one of the things that, and I love to hear your thoughts that people oftentimes struggle with, is that B, is that mindset in terms of getting clarity on who they are and who they want to become, the type of work that they want to do, where they want to channel their resources. And sometimes they feel intimidated because there's so many big problems in the world and that can feel overwhelming and lead to inaction versus focusing on one particular problem when then people don't feel like they may be making as much of an impact. So how do you work with students or what's the advice in the book for people to be at that, to get clarity on that the element of that mindset? I share my own personal experience. I think this is quite in line with the work that both of you do. So early in my journey as a social entrepreneur, co-founding Start Some Good, I decided to work with an executive coach. And in working with the coach, it was absolutely transformational for me. So I went to him and like many of your listeners, I think like probably both of you, we can get so wrapped up in our own social venture. I remember that people would be asking me, hey, Alex, how are you doing? And I'd literally answer, oh, well, Start Some Good had a good day today, so I'm good. Or we got a new partner, so I'm good. Um, and I become like so intertwined in my venture, which is obviously looking on the outside in. It's unhealthy, but like you believe so strongly in what you're doing that you can't see the forest for the trees. And so we did a couple of things that were transformational for me. The first is we did some values work. So identifying what my core values are. And I found that even though that happened about 12 years ago, I continue to reflect back on that almost daily, that when I'm faced with a hard decision, when I'm struggling with something, I anchor back to that. If you don't have the luxury of an executive coach, totally fine. There's great lists of values you can start with. Brene Brown has a great list. James Clear has a great list. The way I like to think about it is to pay attention to like, what's something that deeply annoys you that really makes you frustrated and sometimes on the opposite side of that is the value that you hold. And then the second thing we did was also come up with a personal mission statement. And this was clarifying for me because as I mentioned, I was so intertwined with my own venture. I felt so passionate about the work that Start Some Good did that I also couldn't imagine doing anything else. It felt like I had to make this thing succeed. And if it didn't, then there was my life purpose and I had failed. By broadening out and realizing a broader and more expansive and inclusive mission, 
it allowed me to have more confidence to go on to other things as well. So of course, I've worn a number of different hats since we first met. I've been the social entrepreneur. I've also been a social intrapreneur. I'm a teacher. I'm an author. And I'm able to do all those things because it's in line with my personal mission. Being a social entrepreneur is one way to achieve that, but not the only way. And so I think for someone that's struggling or trying to figure that out, I think two great places to anchor is getting clear on your values and doing some work around what your own personal, not organization, what your own personal mission statement is. 100%. When it comes to the values work, that I think has to be foundational in all careers as well as all social impact careers because we have to build off of what's most important to us. We often say that one another way to find values is to keep asking the question, what's most important about that? Until you get to a word, a phrase that you can't go deeper than that itself. So I really appreciate what you're saying and grounding the work in values and personal mission statements. I have to ask you, Alex, when it comes to being a change maker, I think one thing that we think a lot about running a global community now with Be Social Change is acting from your own personal mission and then coordinating with others. And I'm curious, you know, once you have established that mindset, once you are ready to be a change maker, what does coordination look like? What does it look like to work with other people? How have you seen that work through either your students or your research? One of my favorite articles is in Stanford's Social Innovation Review, and it's called The Most Impactful Leaders You've Never Heard Of. And in it, they posit a concept which is called the networked leader. And this really resonates with me. I think it resonates with the way we should think about social change. They have four tenets, but the one I'll focus on here is to be a node, not a hub. And so I think it's very easy for us as we think about leading change to want to make ourselves central to it. And I think we have a bad habit in the social impact world. And I'm coming to you from Silicon Valley where we do heropreneurship. We put the lone innovator up on a pedestal, but that's not really how change happens. And so we need to be thinking about how do we plug into existing systems? Because chances are you're not the first person that's come up with this idea. And so being a node, not a hub, instead of making all the activities swirl around you, think about what are the existing systems, the other people that are working on it, and how can you play a role that complements it? You know, there's a role, for instance, that maybe you see a model that's working really well in a different geography, a different community, and you adopt it to your local community. Or maybe you find if there's 10 parts of a social change movement you need, maybe you plug in with part number four, because that's where you feel like there's a great need. But it's having that sort of systems awareness to see what other people are doing and focus on being a node and not a hub. Absolutely. And in order to maximize the impact that we want to have in the world, we have to work with others and collaborate with others to do it. And as a leader, being able to create that vision that you have for your organization or the world, but also have people as an integral part of it. And sometimes taking a step back and leading from behind. In your career, how has networking and building that community of support really helped support your career growth? And I think what we can do is love to even take a step back and share with the listeners your own career trajectory. And then we can talk about how networking and your community helped you get to where you are. Gladly, because community came in very early in my work as a social entrepreneur. So I co-founded the organization Starts Some Good, co-founded with Tom Dawkins. And it's a platform to support early stage social entrepreneurs. We recognize that there is a gap in the market, that it's never easy to raise funds, but it's especially hard before you can prove your impact. But how do you prove your impact until you have the funds to actually launch a pilot? And so we launched a crowdfunding site back in the early days of crowdfunding. Very and early, yeah. Yeah. What I love about it is that we had people use our site that raised six figures, so hundreds of thousands of dollars. We also had people that would come and raise $250. I think about a group of teenagers in East Oakland, and they wanted to start an urban garden, and they came to our site. I think they just raised $250, $300, and that was all the money they needed to get soil and seeds and beds and just get started with their urban garden. 
And so that's why we exist is to help those early stage social entrepreneurs start some good. So early on in my own journey with Start Some Good, I was fortunate to be selected for something called the Youth Action Net Global Fellowship. And so there are 20 of us from around the world, one representative from each country. And when I say global, like truly was global. So I was from the US, but there are people from Mexico, Peru, Brazil, Uganda, South Africa, Poland, Germany, UK, Cambodia, Thailand, Australia, literally all around the world. And so I remember on the second night that we were all together, we were meeting up just outside of Istanbul in Turkey. And so we're hanging out, getting to know each other. And we were swimming in the sea and we were standing on these rocks about to do cliff jumping, not super high, but you know, cliff jumping, got to jump in. And so we counted, fortunately for me in English, three, two, one, and then we jumped in. So remember we jumped into the water and we sort of were splashing around and I saw the sun about to set on the horizon. And I looked around and I thought, wow, this is a really magical moment. If you think about it, each of us could not have had more different lived experiences. Someone coming from Kampala, Uganda, someone coming from Phnom Penh, very different experiences, honestly, very different changes we were trying to lead. But there's something about us that united us, that we were each change makers, that we were each trying to make a difference in our own community. And I realized there that we have so much in common and also that community is so central to being a change maker that I had no idea how to do, I don't know, an Excel balance sheet to try to figure out how to pay my first employees, but neither did they. And we could all figure it out together as we went. And to this day, we still have a WhatsApp group and I still get a wonderful like jolt, this kind of Pavlovian reflex when I see a text come in from them, because it's a reminder that like we literally are these change makers all around the world, supporting each other and fighting for change from our own corners. And to me, that's the embodiment of change making and doing it in community. And so I guess my takeaway for listeners would be, you know, maybe community is directly within your organization and it's finding a co-founder. I certainly could not have done Start Some Good without my co-founder, Tom, but also maybe it's through something like Be Social Change or other social networks where you find that community because it's absolutely crucial. Leading change is really hard and especially if you're sort of at the top of the organization, can feel really lonely. And it's so powerful to have that community around you. So I encourage you, no matter what form it takes, to find and nurture that community. Alex, thank you so much for sharing that. And we couldn't agree more. As you're painting this picture of the setting sun over cliffs in Istanbul, I'm thinking to myself, wow, it's incredible also the ways in which we find moments that also anchor us and inspire us. And oftentimes, whenever I talk with people, that's always in the setting of being with others and being in community with people. So I really appreciate what you're saying. And I'd love to hear just a little bit more about your journey too. How did you come up with the idea of Start Some Good? And where did you go from there? How did you get to Haas? <laughs> well, the initial idea for Start Some Good happened. I was living and working in India as in Ahmedabad. And while I was there, I did some volunteer work with a local social enterprise. And I am not overstating my impact because I barely did anything for them. It's really about the local leaders, but supported them. And it was a group working with girls from the local community and using sport as a tool to teach healthy habits and leadership. And so that's really where I had the realization that there's these change makers all around the world. At the time I was in public policy school. And so the lens often for policy is thinking about change through big existing institutions. And there is a role for that. But this group in Ahmedabad showed me that there's these grassroots change makers everywhere, but there's too many barriers getting in the way. And that really became the red thread through my whole career with Start Some Good, but with everything else I've done is thinking about how can we help more people step into their own change maker potential. So I led Start Some Good for a few years, but then as life happens, fell in love with a woman and she got a job offer in Stockholm, Sweden, and we decided to move together. We visited together in July and it was sunny and beautiful, the long Swedish summer nights. We moved in January and I had never been colder in my life. It was brutal. <laughs> 
but it was also a great opportunity to get to know things about community. At that point, I no longer wanted to keep running an organization where I was virtual. I wanted to get involved in the local community. And so I'm grateful that someone took a chance on me and I got to run an incubator for Swedish social entrepreneurs. And as I did that, of course, I was advising them on how to measure their impact, how to generate revenue. But really, it's where I first started teaching. I realized that in leading and growing Start Some Good, I had learned so much and I never had the time to process it. But then in this new role, I could help people honestly try to avoid a lot of the mistakes that I made myself. And that's where I said, wow, I really love teaching. So I was in Stockholm for about three years. We got engaged, decided to move back to San Francisco, which is where I'm from. And then through a lot of good fortune, I decided to join Berkeley Haas, which is the business school at UC Berkeley. And a few months in, I made the pitch, a non-traditional professor, and that I don't have a PhD. And honestly, I'd never taken a business class before then, but I made the pitch for what I thought was a course that our university needed, which was becoming a change maker. To my delight, the person I was pitching it to, the person who oversees curriculum and faculty said, yeah, I kind of expect him to say no. He said, okay, put together a syllabus, show it to me, and we'll go from there. And so I shook his hand, walked out of his office, closed the door, and then immediately pulled out my phone and Googled how to create a syllabus because I had no idea what I was actually doing. But that became the start of my teaching journey at UC Berkeley. That's amazing. And in your career trajectory, you mentioned something earlier where you were a social entrepreneur and then a social intrapreneur. And those are really different career paths, but also share some common skill sets and mindsets, but also some differences as well. So you can share a little bit about each of those and how you ended up navigating both of those types of career paths. Yeah, on the entrepreneur side, part of what's wonderful about it is there's no rules. <laughs> there's no <laughs> rules. There's literally no one telling you what to do. You can come up with any idea and you can run with it. On the entrepreneur side, I found there's many more rules. There's policies, there's procedures, there's team cultures that you adopt. And so you're working within some more limited confines. So whereas entrepreneurship is just anything goes potentially. Entrepreneurship means that you have to be much more politically astute and aware of your surroundings. But on the positive side, it also comes with a lot more stability. Being a social entrepreneur is really hard and it's quite exhausting. And I really felt the pressure that we had to generate revenue because if I didn't, then I wouldn't get a paycheck for the people on the team. And that's a really heavy thing to hold. And so it was actually pretty nice to be a social entrepreneur where I knew that I had some of those basics covered. I knew my salaries covered. I knew that if the thing didn't quite work, we could pivot into something else. And you also have the resources of a larger organization behind you. I didn't have to figure out in the social entrepreneurship days when we had to figure out how to, I don't know, create a terms of service for a website. I had to try to pitch legal firms to do pro bono work for us. When it came to being a social entrepreneur, we had a whole legal staff I could just pull on and say, hey, I need help with this. I think that it can be harder sometimes to get started in an organization because there are those cultures and rules and norms and perhaps more stakeholders you have to engage but can also be really powerful, especially at a bigger organization. When you get the resources and the weight of that team behind you, you can go really far. And so I think as change makers, we shouldn't make a judgment in terms of which one's better or worse. It's more about which one is a better fit for you. And I wouldn't even say you as a person, I'd say you for where you are right now, because I felt an opportunity for both of them, I think at the right times in my life. And I think that your story, Alex, is so inspiring in that sense where it's like, you've tried entrepreneurship, you've tried entrepreneurship, and you shared with us how deeply you love teaching too. And that was probably something that, I don't know if you first saw that in your career or not, but through experience, you were able to really hone in on one of the best ways for you to be a change maker. And I think that experience piece is really important too for our listeners. And I think that's so important because in between, I also had a job with an organization that was very mission-driven and was super aligned with the work they did. But my actual job 
was so boring and so not meaningful. I'd come home each day and I'd feel really drained. And at first I thought there's something wrong with me because they'd be like, what's wrong with me? Because the organization is doing important work. Why don't I feel fulfilled? But it's not enough to just work for an impactful organization. I think it's also the type of work that you do that really matters. As I look back on my career, I didn't know it at the time, but actually everything I've been doing has always been kind of a teacher. Let's start some good. We were very early in the crowdfunding world and pretty early in the social enterprise world. And so while we were building a company, I actually found I was doing a lot of teaching. I would do a lot of workshops or just support people on our site with teaching them, how do you crowdfund successfully? How do you tell your story? How do you engage your supporters? And I didn't set out to be a teacher, but I realized I just kept gravitating towards ways that I would be in roles where I could teach. And so I wouldn't have known it at the time. And honestly, when I made the pitch for the class, I still didn't know that's what I wanted to do. But as I look back, teaching is so crucial, so core to who I am as a person, what I care about. I almost wonder, could you have traced it to your personal mission when you created it all those years ago? That's such a great concept. I don't know that I could have other than the mission is expansive enough. This is a way to pursue it. I think what the mission gave me was a number of different hows to pursue one why. And so I tried on a few different hows and found that this was perhaps the one that fit best. Yeah. And I think to your point about that personal mission statement, it gives you that North Star and how you eventually get there, navigate there is probably going to take a lot of different paths. And as you gain more experience, more opportunities arise and you get more clarity on where you feel is the best fit for you. So I appreciate coming back to that personal mission statement because it could be a framework to make decisions with as you're navigating a social impact career. Absolutely. And to do so with confidence, right? So if you know that's in line with that, then you, know, you don't know for sure if it will work out, but this is at least worth trying. And I think having that confidence is super helpful. And you will feel that if you're making decisions based on those values from that exercise, you'll feel much more meaning and purposeful as you're pursuing that path. So as we've started talking about how people can figure out what that direction is or what that path is, once you're there, and again, it's a never-ending journey of that learning, but then can you dive a little bit deeper into that leadership aspect about what you teach and in your book and how do people become better leaders? Well, one of my favorite concepts from the book is something I call micro-leadership. I think the way we teach leadership at business schools is broken. So we tend to tell the stories of the heroic leadership gesture. We think about like Steve Jobs pulling the first iPhone out of his pocket or Eleanor Roosevelt leading the creation of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights or Nelson Mandela fighting apartheid and uniting a nation. And to be clear, there's a role for this type of heroic once in a generation type of leadership. But I think when we put leaders like these up on a pedestal, it causes so many of us to look at that and go, I'm not that brave, I'm not that extrovert, I'm not that courageous. Does that mean that leadership isn't for me? But no, absolutely not. I think that for too long, we've gotten confused. We think that leadership is a title, but the core thing I teach in my class is that leadership is an act. And so an organization might only have one CEO, one executive director, but each and every one of us can practice acts of leadership. And so to take that philosophical concept and make it practical, I introduced a concept called micro-leadership. And so micro-leadership breaks leadership down into its smallest and most meaningful unit, which is just a leadership moment. And if you pay attention, you'll see that there's these leadership moments that appear before you quite literally dozens of times per day. It might be during a meeting where you notice that one of your colleagues hasn't spoken up and you say, hey, no pressure, but would love to hear your perspective, your voice, if you're willing to share. Or maybe it's having the courage to be the one person to say no when everyone else is saying yes. Or maybe it's just being the one person that stays late to help a new colleague clean up after their first event. These are all tiny little leadership moments. But if you start paying attention to them, then you'll realize that they actually appear before you all the time. The key is, do you give yourself that permission? As we talked about earlier, we tend to think, I will lead change once I'm a vice president. I'll lead change once I have formal authority. I'll lead change once someone says, hey, Jen, Marco, it's your time to lead. But if you keep waiting for that permission, it may never come. 
And so instead, microleadership is an invitation to give yourself your own permission to lead. And even if you're in an organization where maybe you're lower down on the power hierarchy, the beautiful part about microleadership is that these are all tiny little acts. Your boss would never get mad at you for being the one person to stay late and help a new colleague clean up. So you do these tiny little acts, you don't need permission. But then when you look back after know, a few weeks, a few months, you realize that you've been practicing leadership. You might not have the title, but you have the acts of leadership. It builds your confidence and it builds up your own new identity and saying, yeah, you know what? I am a leader. This resonates so deeply too in thinking about internal cultures and how we shape internal cultures to be either hierarchical or promoting of leaders at multiple levels. And I think the idea of micro leadership is really, it's healing and it also gives recognition to so many of the other people who you might otherwise overlook in an organization or the acts that you might otherwise overlook. Something that comes to mind too, as you're talking about micro leadership and as you're talking about the ways in which people can step up is the idea of connecting it back to your values. That each example that you shared stemmed from a value, whether that's courage or hard work or determination that being connected to your own values can probably is another great way of getting to those micro leadership moments. Absolutely. Because you'll feel especially called to it. And in doing so, it's a chance for you to live your values and what's more important or more meaningful than that. Yeah. And I think it's so important to call out that aspect of the heroic leadership versus other forms of leadership. And one of the things you pointed out in terms of being in that meeting and seeing people that hadn't been speaking up. And that leads to that inclusiveness piece that you just described. And as a leader, thinking about how you can create opportunities for other people to lead or to feel included or tapping into their own unique talent and skills. And it's a combination of not necessarily a leader being it's all about me, but how can I be a coach and a facilitator and create the proper environment so that other people can flourish? Yeah, exactly right. It's amazing what can be accomplished when instead of being about the leader, it's about all of us. Exactly. I'm almost hesitant to ask this question because I feel like you've given us so many gems and I know that it's hard to boil down to one. But when your students come to you for advice and say, hey, I'm looking to be a change maker, I'm working on my mindset, I'm working on influencing, I'm working on all of the aspects that you shared with them, and I still feel stuck. What advice might you give them to help them grow into the change maker that they're meant to be? I'll share an exercise we do in the class, which is maybe one I'll challenge your listeners to do as well. So I think failure is absolutely key to being a change maker. There's never been any type of change that's been led without failure along the way. But perhaps some of your listeners are like my students, which is that they're generally high achievers and they generally got to where they are by doing things the quote right way. And so we have one week in the class where it's all about failure. So we do a couple of case studies. We look at some empirical research and data, watch an inspiring video. But then towards the end of class, I give them an assignment and I flash up two words on a screen and it just says, go fail. <laughs> and students start looking around nervous, like what's going on? I say, yeah, no, I'm serious. You got 15 minutes. You have to go leave the classroom and you have to go purposely get rejected. And you can't <laughs> come back until you've gotten a no. I tell them, look, I'll be at the front. I'll happy to coach you on things. Have you come up with ideas, what to ask for, support you. But yeah, I'm serious. You have 15 minutes, clock starting now, go fail. And so students leave the classroom really nervous. But when they come back, the energy is just off the charts. So much so that I once had a professor next door come over and ask us to keep the noise down because students were just so lit up from this exercise. And we see that one of two things happens. For about 30% of students, they ask for something. They're sure that they'll get rejected. And then getting a yes. I think about a woman who went to the cafe downstairs and she said, hi, I don't have my wallet. Could I have a free orange juice? And she started turning and walking away, expecting a no. But the barista goes, yeah, okay. And she's like, oh, I'm supposed to fail. Can I have two? He goes, yeah, okay. Three? No, thankfully he cut her off there. But she came back to class with two orange juices. And that's a reminder that sometimes our first failure is that we're so sure we'll be rejected. 
that we don't even ask for the thing that we want in the first place. And then for the other 70%, they dutifully go fail, they get rejected. But when they come back, they think that they're going to be dejected or sad. They actually come back full of life, full of energy. They're so proud of themselves for putting themselves out there, the courage that it took. And they also realize that no one laughed at them, wasn't as bad as they thought. Sometimes a no turns into not yet or something else. They find that people often want to try to help them or they make every effort to. You know, I think about one woman who asked another lady, hi, could I try on your shoes? And she thankfully said no, but like she honestly thought about it for a long time, like much longer than like I would have thought if someone wanted my shoes. And it shows that like a lot of people do really want to help us. And so the reason I share this as the answer to your question is that as change makers, we need to change our relationship to failure. There's something called the failure paradox, which is that we tend to look at people who succeed and think that they've failed a tiny bit and succeeded a lot. But actually the truth is that those who succeed the most also fail the most. They just keep going. So I think as change makers, one of the most fundamental building blocks you can have is to change your relationship to failure instead of fearing it and avoiding it to embracing it. It doesn't mean that failure is fun. It doesn't mean it's enjoyable, but let's start seeing it as an inevitable part of leading change. If you're going to question the status quo, you're going to come up against resistance. You're going to come up against people that say no. And so can you keep going in spite of it? That's what some of the best change makers do. And I think that's such an integral skill, such an important skill for people to learn, especially younger people in the context of parenting and kids and ensuring that at a young age, kids feel like they can fail and they feel comfortable with failure and not shielding them from opportunities when they can fail and teaching them how they can learn from that failure. Because I feel like in my own personal entrepreneurship journey, some of the biggest learning points were when I completely, totally, utterly failed or launched a startup that never caught, saw the light of day or just did really poorly. And I appreciate that you're focusing so much on that. I have to say too, when it comes to failure, I think that one of the biggest keys is recognizing that the fears that hold us back are within our grasp. And so I think that there's an element to what you're describing, whether it's the micro leadership, whether it's the mindset, or whether it's actually going forth and failing, that also helps us to address the fears that get in our way. Um, and so I just want to say, I super appreciate what it is that you're saying. And I'm curious too, from your own career, from your own journey to becoming a change maker, if there's advice that you'd offer our community, whether it's having to do with starting something or pitching a class when you don't have teaching experience, like what would be the top advice that you'd give to our community about trying to become a change maker? So I'll raise up the advice that comes from a friend of mine, Jocelyn Ling Milan. She came to speak to my change maker class and she said, think about your career as a series of hypotheses. And I love that way of thinking that we so often think, sit in our room by ourselves. We think, oh, you know what? I wanna go be an accountant for good. Or you know what? I'm gonna go do graphic design. But you don't actually know until you start those things. And so I think a healthy way to think about your career is to come up with a series of hypotheses. And it could be almost anything. It could be, I hypothesize that I like doing direct service with people. I hypothesize I wanna live in a big city. I hypothesize I want to work for a huge organization and generate those resources to create social change, right? Those are all valid hypotheses. And then you go test them because we have this tendency to try to sit and sit and come up with a perfect job and craft it in our head, but you just don't know until you get out there. And so my best advice is to think like a scientist, put on your lab coat, put on your goggles, think about what's a hypothesis you want to test and then find ways you can go actually test that. Great advice to end on. Thank you so much, Alex, for all of your knowledge and expertise and super actionable advice. So if people wanted to learn more about you or your book, where can they find you? Go to changemakerbook.com to read more about the book, find places to pick up a copy if you're inspired and love connecting with folks, love connecting with change makers like this community. So feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn, send a message, say you heard this podcast and would love to connect with you there. Awesome. Thank you so much, Alex, for joining us today. Marcos, Jen, thanks so much. It's super fun. Alex is so wonderful and uplifting to speak with. 
I am just in awe of the way in which he so clearly lays out the skills and the mindsets and all of these valuable resources for anyone who wants to become a change maker. And I really enjoyed listening to him about the most enthusiastic adapters, and it's totally spot on. And I loved his lessons around failure, and it's something that I want everyone to practice and practice it often. Yes, yes. He really makes accessible to everyone the idea of being a leader or micro-leadership lessons. And I want everyone to practice that, as well as go forth and read his book, Becoming a Changemaker, which is available now. I always feel so lucky having these conversations with you, Jen. And I'm also grateful for all the people in our community who are dedicated to being changemakers. Agreed. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. We're really looking forward to seeing you again next week for the next episode. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you liked the episode, help us grow the impact of this podcast by taking a quick second to leave us a five-star rating and review telling us what you liked. And please share the podcast with anyone you think could benefit from this type of career and business advice. Word of mouth is the number one way we can grow the podcast and the impact we have on people's careers. And don't forget to visit besocialchange.com for free social impact career resources through our newsletter. See you next week.